Hello, uh, my name's Grant Bartley and you're listening to the pilot edition of the Philosophy Now radio show. My guests tonight will be Mark Vernon talking about his book How to Be an Agnostic and Peter Cave talking about his book How to Think Like a Bat. So obviously the title of this programme is How to Think Like an Agnostic Bat. First of all, I want to get the philosophical temperature of the guys. I want to ask them both the same question, which is, uh, what is philosophy and why is it important to you? So, Mark, would you like to answer that question first? Good evening. Hello. I think philosophy means something rather fascinating to me. It means a kind of delight in insights and maybe the kind of insights where you make a a little distinction um, and you discover something new. And for me, the lead really does come from Plato um, and uh, who I studied and that's how I got into philosophy. Um, And um, he liked to ask not so much the questions about what we know and how we know things, but how we live. Um, And that led him to, well, really set an agenda that still um, we carry to this day. So that ties in with your book on agnosticism we'll be talking about later, which is philosophy is about a way of life to you. Yeah, very much so. Okay. uh, Peter, what about you? What's philosophy to you and why is it important? I wonder how I dare disagree to saying that philosophy is a kind of life to me. Sounds very, very good. I suppose I'm more influenced by Wittgenstein, though Uh I'm very keen on Plato. But um, I'd say really philosophy is about understanding our understanding of the world. And in a way of looking at that, it really is a matter, I think, of somehow being, as Mark maybe said, bedazzled, amazed by certain incongruities in our understanding of the world, and yet then trying to quell those um, amazements and trying to see our ways through them. To you, philosophy is more like a way of mining amazing ideas for instance. It certainly is amazing also there's another amazing feature of it in that you can do it with a glass of red wine yeah. or indeed white wine or whereas if you're glasses. a scientist you have to go out into dicey laboratories and risk yeah. blowing yourself up whereas a philosopher likes sitting in an armchair with a glass of wine thinking so it's a wonderful subject. Yeah and uh, it's a dirty job but someone's got to do it. Okay um, I'm not sure I was talking about dirtiness there but you no. do know I do live in Soho. Yeah that's right. Um, we're going to just crack on straight away with the interviews then. Uh, So let me tell you a bit more about Peter Cave, who's going to be the first interview. Uh, He teaches philosophy at the Open University and is chair of the Humanist Philosophers of Great Britain. His new book is called How to Think Like a Bat, and it's available from Quercus. Now, uh, could you tell us a, a bit about this new book of yours, please, Peter? Well, I certainly could. Would you like me to? Yes, please. Oh, that's very quick thinking there. Um, It really is a book which is meant to be accessible to people to get them into the idea of the puzzles, the perplexities of understanding the world. So I think there's really two very, very big issues here. One issue is to think about the nature of the world around us. How do we understand space and time? Okay. Um, But another big issue is understanding morality, about things which we ought to do. And so we could talk more about bats. I don't think bats have any sense of morality. But nonetheless, it may be of interest to try to think like a bat. Could they have bat morality, do you think? Or you may call it batty morality, but then that applies to some human beings as well. But I'm not looking at Mark when I say that. I found it to be um, rather like a course in modern philosophical thinking in terms of ethics and logic. And and also metaphysics and epistemology, just to use some big words. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Uh, Epistemology is like how you know how you can know things. Uh, Metaphysics is the study, I suppose, of uh, the fundamental nature of reality. Grant, why do you assume all the listeners are guys? 
Uh, that's a generic term. Oh, I see. Does it apply to porcupines too? Uh, if there's any listening, oh, which I, I look forward to the porcupine response, or indeed yeah. the bat's response. Would you think a porcupine would like to think like a bat? No, 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 I think a porcupine doesn't think much, but then some human beings don't. So I would claim that the value of my book, and indeed Mark's books and other people's books, is really to encourage people to think well, to think very carefully about the nature of morality, the nature of the world, about consequences of arguments. And uh -huh. so although you're perfectly correct in saying that the book is very much raising contemporary issues, dare I say there are sufficient references to Plato and Aristotle and Wittgenstein so to interest those with interest so in So your motivation ideas. is to, for people to think well? Enlightenment. Right. How, how do you know that the well you're telling them to think is good thinking? Once it is deeply explained, it becomes self-evident. Some things, when you go through them step by step, people do just tend to end up seeing that, ah, oh, yes, that is a good argument as opposed to that's a bad argument. People, foolishly, I think, often say there's no right or wrong answers in philosophy. That, that is a dreadful mistake. There are some right or wrong answers. For example, if someone said, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is not mortal, that would just be wrong. That's a bad argument, full stop. And there's no argument about that argument. OK, so you, you want people fundamentally to, to be logical and you want to encourage them in, in no. knowing the way to build. No. I want people to be logical, but also to be emotional, also to enjoy the delights of the world, to enjoy the wine, okay. but also the sunsets, okay, to enjoy let me music put, et al. Let me put the question another way. You want all these other things to be uh, compatible, logically compatible with their logicalness, uh, which means that it all makes sense when added together. Nothing contradicts. I'm not sure if you're up to this, Grant, but I'd even be prepared to disagree with you there. <laughs> I think know. there are some Go fundamental ahead. contradictions in our understanding of morality, and I think we just have to face that. We uh -huh. have to face that there are indeed moral dilemmas in which we muddle through, and there probably are contradictions okay. built into those concepts. Like, give me an example from your book of what you mean by a fundamental irresolvable moral contradiction, for instance? Well, I can give you many sorts of examples, but just think how people often find a clash of different values. So in current Britain, for example, there was a much discussion about whether it was fair or not to detain people without trial, without telling them what they're going to be um, found guilty or innocent of, without knowing what they're being accused of. And so you've got to compare, contrast indeed, that sort of concern about someone's human rights with the other concern about how to protect the society from terrorist Should, bombers. Couldn't example. that just be a case of people not really having thought through what's involved in these processes? Well, do you think there's any way of measuring this rather dicey concept of um, human rights or the rights to a fair trial and so on with another concept to do with overall human welfare? Well, I could give you many other examples. Um, think how some people say really it's grossly unfair to have inheritance tax or to be taxed at 50%, uh -huh. whereas other people say obviously that's fair. Well, how can we understand fairness to resolve that problem? OK, so basically, tell me if I'm right here, but you're saying that there are some things that you can't really resolve, ultimately speaking, so you've got to live with the paradox. This is well, I think quite an agnostic <laughs> stance, isn't it? No, I think there's... Yes and no. I think there are some things which deeply sincere people might come to deep disagreements over, and there's no resolution. I can give you another, perhaps a more immediate example. It might well be the case that two women are pregnant... Um, and one really thinks that in her, she's a very sincere person and she really thinks she should have an abortion. And the other woman, in exactly the same situation, really thinks she ought not to have an abortion. Right. 
I suspect that with regard to each of their lifestyles, they might both be right, because they are actually different types of people. They'd have different reasons for thinking what they do, but well, there's no be... external way of saying that you're right and you're wrong. I suppose I tend to say in that case they're both right in following their deep beliefs there. A famous example which is mentioned in my, dare I say, How to Think Like a Bat book, that's called A Promotion, is it, Grant? Is um, Jean-Paul Sartre when he tells a story in the Second World War of how a student was anguishing about whether he should stay behind in France to look after his aged mother or whether, in fact, he should join the resistance movement. And he actually had reasons for both sides of that debate. And as Sartre said, at the end of the day, he just has to make a choice. He has to leap into one valuation being stronger than the other valuation. I mean, do you think that's uh, really typical of human life to make these sort of unjustified choices? I think, sadly, if people haven't thought about philosophy or indeed read these discussions of these issues, people often tend to think there's an immediate black or white answer, um, and that really depresses me. And so one good reason for reading philosophy and to thinking about these topics we discuss in our books is to be aware that when you read the Daily Mail or indeed the Guardian, there are probably some outrageous comments being made without any good reasoning behind them, and that does concern uh-huh. me. It particularly concerns me, for example, of Dave, we're all in it together, Cameron, getting away with that statement. Mm. I think that's called a political comment. One question I want to ask you. There's 35 articles, would you say, in, in your How to Think Like a Bat book? I think the technical term is chapters. Chapters, OK. And at first, they, if you look at the chapter headings, they don't seem to be connected, like how to be God, how to avoid being seduced by logic. But I got the impression that uh, there was a connection of thinking and logic. So the book is basically about thinking, hence the title. Would you say that's right? Or what is your agenda for the the book? Well, inevitably, if someone's reading a philosophy book, they should be thinking. So that's undoubtedly part of the story. thinking about thinking in this case, rather than about morality or anything else. But... um, It would also, it does make the case somewhere to remind us that there's a lot of value on occasions in not thinking, but just in experiencing the world. There's a value in experiencing the sunset or a value in experiencing the ocean or indeed love without thinking about it, quote, logically. And so that's why I was feeling a bit uneasy, Grant, when you try to make me out to be writing a book purely to do with logic and reasoning okay. because sometimes that misleadingly leads people into thinking that, oh, well, logic is bound to be cold, it's bound to be yeah, dis- dismissive mean, yeah. of emotion. And you've got to Whereas we enjoy emotions, we yeah, enjoy the conflict. Well, I, you know, your book is very accessible and it's written for the general public, so... Do I have to slip you a fiver to say you that? Don't have, you just have to promote good thinking, Peter. That's ah, what I good thinking. I and the appreciation like. of times when you ought not to be thinking. I, I did think rather that this was... Um, rather than how to think like a bat, it did seem to me how to think like Peter Cave. What do you think about that? Well, if other people were to think like me, it would be a wonderful world, wouldn't it? They sure? might be a little bit tedious, because I do enjoy the idea of different views. So as we know, shortly Mark will be talking maybe from a more religious viewpoint, although yeah. he's now an agnostic. Well, an agnostic viewpoint, but, in, but as you also know, I'm an atheist. I chair the Humanist Philosophers Group of Great Britain. And so although I am an atheist, I really do enjoy the existence of certain religious traits. I certainly enjoy the existence of religious music, and mm-hmm. sometimes I would listen to even song and so on. So I think variety is itself of great value. 
Another example in which philosophy is very valuable, I think, is people often say, oh, well, what's the point of philosophy? Yeah. Well, one valuable item in philosophy, I think, is to remind people that sometimes things can be valuable without a point. So what's the point of football? Well, people would just say football is itself so intrinsically if, valuable. If and you they enjoy might, something, that's, a, that's its own point. That sometimes yeah. is its own point. But equally, um, cultivating a garden is its own point for some people. Playing chess, maybe winning or losing can be so own the, Going uh, the, to a rock the, concert. The principle people. here is whatever makes you happy or whatever makes you healthy. Or no, I think that's you. a mistake. I think it's a mistake immediately to say, oh, well, it must be because of happiness or it must be because of satisfactions. I think yeah, I some agree. things are valuable in themselves. Yeah. I think there's lots of things that are, are beneficial to people, not just happiness. There's freedom and uh, For truth example. and things like that. And so so one, one way together. you can handle that, Grant, is if you take someone like John Stuart Mill, who is associated with maximising pleasure or happiness, if you read Mill carefully you'll see that his understanding of happiness does include these other values such as yeah. freedom, such as dignity and so on. Uh, and that's why indeed dear Mill says it's better to be a dissatisfied Socrates than a satisfied pig. I think that's a very wide range in use of the word happiness but we're not... But you can see how Mill is not a straightforward satisfaction theorist, whereas many economists wrongly attribute it to him. Okay, which of these 35 chapters reflect or are closest to your core area of interest to you? And would you like to tell us a bit about that one? I suppose my core area of interest, apart from having the red wine, perhaps I ought not to keep on mentioning that. Do yeah, you think I'm alcoholic? Yeah, he's, he's yes. a deceiving you, listeners. Yes, he's water, got water. They didn't offer me any alcohol this evening. Yeah, well, I know what you like. But um, you know what I like? That's another issue. But with regard to your particular question, I think what I find very interesting in philosophy are clashes are incongruities, so often they're in terms of paradoxes, but a very accessible one is in a chapter about how to be free, because if you think about it, in our everyday lives we blame people, we praise people, we say they deserve things, we say they ought to be punished and so on, so our very, very, very nature of our conceptual scheme, our understanding of the world is to think people can freely do things, and then they deserve praise or blame, blah, blah. And yet equally so, if we stand back, if we detach ourselves a little bit, then we'll probably go along with a scientific understanding, saying, well, hold on, all those human actions are caused by changes inside the brain, and those have been caused by other changes which were caused sure. by your genetic makeup and your environment. And so there's an intrinsic clash between the scientific determinism of understanding mm -hmm. human behaviour and our everyday life. I don't see why it has to be a clash, though. Can't you say that it's you that is making the choices? I mean, there has to be a something that you're going to be making a choice about. So there has to be something that exists before the choice. So what's wrong with saying, although the whole state of the universe before you make the choice or whatever is caused, it's still you that's making the choice and therefore that's what free... Indeed, that's one, one line of approach. But then somebody might say, but I couldn't help being me, and why should I be blamed for being a guy who is naturally, I don't know, um, a kleptomaniac, or uh, being a guy who likes stealing knickers from Harvey Nichols or whatever, yeah, if I can't actually help it? Sure, but you'd be hard-pushed to prove that you couldn't have made an alternative choice in any given situation, right? Well, some people might say, looking at your neural structures and so on, it really is the case those were going to be the actions which were the result of those neural structures. But, but there's a genuine problem there. Um, I suppose just take people who might be listening who are smokers but would mm -hmm. rather not be smokers. Right. 
they have a desire to avoid the desire for smoking, uh-huh. and yet they may not be able to satisfy that desire because they've got the smoking habit. And it isn't, it's too casual, isn't it, to say, oh, well, they could just stop. Well, it's, you know, it's different uh, horses for courses, isn't it? You, you have I never to know what that means either. It, makes, it means you take each case individually. On, I approve you know, of that, it's, yes. it's Case by case. Yes. Case by case studies. So I'd be arguing very much against generalisations, apart from that generalisation. Well, generalisations have their place too, I'm sure. But What's that it's, it's, it's like metaphors. You've got to know the limits of it, don't you, really? From the evidence of your book and other things that I've read by you, you seem obsessed by logical paradoxes. What do you think paradoxes reveal about what it is to think like a human being? You, you couldn't avoid, could you, dear Grant, slipping the word logical paradoxes. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm happy. Well, paradoxes, logical paradoxes. Yes. But yes, they, paradoxes. They, they are some clash in the reasoning, that's true. And I do find that fascinating because I think that is at the heart of our conceptual schemes, our understanding of the world. I really think... Paradoxes? Well, these clashes. It's an example of a clash again. So I'm talking in a very general sense about these clashes. So Uh I've given you the example of free will and determinism, as it's known in the trade. But take perhaps a more accessible example. Many people are lovers. They fall in love with each other. Now, just think of this clash from within, from the way in which you're looking, from the way in which, say, Jack is looking at his beloved Jill. Uh He just loves things about Jill, and Jill loves things about Jack. Jill might say, I love Jack because he's kind, he's got a coquettish walk, he wears his nail varnish rather nicely, and so on. And so Jill really loves Jack for various features, Uh features F, G, and H, blah, blah. But, of course, if that really is the correct analysis of it, then anybody else would do with features F, G, and H. And yet... So if you take a detached, objective viewpoint, you might say, well, come off it, Jill. Anybody who's like Jack with regard to the coquettish walk and smile and so on would be as good for your lover as Jack. And yet from the attached viewpoint, from within that loving relationship, Jill, and indeed Jack, would be appalled if they started saying, well, anybody else would have done with the same properties. So we've got the clash between the attached viewpoint and the detached. And I could relate that, if I may, to the bat. So we live... Because of all the other stuff, apart from logic, we are capable of living with paradox. Is that probably... I, I think we do live with clashes, and a feature of philosophy, though, is to see quite where the clash is, whether there are ways of overcoming it or ways of reconciling it. And in some cases there are, some cases there aren't. OK, well, seeing as you were talking about love just now, finally I want to ask you, do llamas fall in love, Peter Cave? Ah, oh. Is this a plug for my other book called this is Do an Llamas Falling to plug Love? Your last book, yes. Thirty-three perplexing philosophy puzzles. Oh, that sounds ah, good. That, that sounds a very good book, doesn't and it? What's it? With called? cartoons too. I think it's called Do Llamas Fall in Love. Okay. You can see I'm trying to avoid giving the answer. No, I want you to give the answer. <laughs> Why well, I was trying to avoid that. I think, in the end, I'd probably say llamas do not fall in love. They can sort of go around with each other, they can sort of make sure they don't lose each other and so on. But if you love someone, don't you need to be acting sometimes in their interests, but acting freely in their interests. You know, you could just decide to go with your own self-interest, but you think, no, 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 I'll give my beloved the glass of wine or my okay. beloved the holiday. So llamas don't fall in love because they're incapable of acting freely, that's what you're saying? I think the bottom line is that there are many things to do with having reasons why you love someone, 
acting in their interests, and those do require something to do with free will. Yes. Okay, and that's you're, you're, that's you're great. You're wondering Peter. what to say now, aren't you? I'm wondering how to how to move into the track. But I uh, wanted to move into bats, but never mind. Let's uh, move into a track. Okay. Uh, a track well, of bats. I can I can quickly ask you how can I think like a bat? I don't know the answer to that, but I was trying to say that with regard to the question about bats. It's a well-known question about if, you, if scientists learnt everything there is to know about bats. They chopped up the neurology, they actually learnt about the ecosystem and so on. So that would be the detached viewpoint standing back. Nonetheless, wouldn't they still always be missing what it's like for a bat to experience, to yeah, think of sure, the world? I agree with and that so that's a great clash again. Science but I think you're passing me on to a little bit of my music. Aren't yes, you? would you like to introduce the track, please? No. I wish I knew what exactly what it's called. But it's by Berio, and it's a wonderful part from his Symphonia. It's okay. One part of it. So I hope you enjoy this, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And it's very much geared to Samuel Beckett's You Must Keep Going. Go on. Yeah. 
Hello, everybody in radio space. This is Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the first edition of the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, I have with me now my guest, Mark Vernon, talking about his book, How to Be an Agnostic. Now, Mark is an ex-Anglican priest and is now a full-time writer. Mark, so the first question I want to ask you is, what do you mean by agnostic and... Uh, why do you think it's important to promote agnosticism rather than, say, atheism or even theism, I suppose? I guess the reason for that really is a personal one, ultimately, is that, um, as you said, I used to be a clergyman, and I left, and for for a while um, I was uh, quite a convinced atheist, right. conviction atheist, but then... Uh, you maybe go through your story in the book, I should say, to the... Yeah, listeners. and then, so two or three years later on after that, I realised I wasn't really an atheist and right. had to sort of try and work out what that meant, and... Agnosticism was the word, but it's a rather unfortunate word in some ways because it tends to mean, in colloquial conversation, a sort of the whatever approach to life. Like, I don't know, and probably I don't really care that much. Um, I did care quite a lot, and I think what it's about, um, for me, agnosticism, is something to do with the human condition, ultimately, which I think is to know a certain amount, but also to be very conscious of what one doesn't know. And in some ways, in a strange kind of way, the more... Um, that one appreciates what one doesn't know, the more fascinating life gets. Okay, I see, because there's uh, this sort of mystery element to it. Yeah, there's mystery and wonder. And, and of course, I think both both the religious quest at its heart and indeed the scientific quest at its heart are about pushing back the boundaries of what one can know and experience. Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, isn't the desire to know slightly contradictory to a stance of uh, deliberate not-knowing, let's say? I actually think that the not-knowing follows quite naturally from... The knowing—it's not a—it's right. not a—it's um, not an anti-sort of knowledge stance, if you like. I, I studied physics um, right. at one point, and one of the things that you learn when you do a degree in physics, as okay. opposed to say an O level or an A level, is that uh, modern physics is premised on a thing called the uncertainty principle. And this is not just like a, a little addition to physics. I'm not this sure is what actually, that is. This is actually underpins quantum mechanics. The, the uncertainty principle is the idea that um, if you want to take a measurement of, of say, an electron, um, you can ta- say take a measurement of its momentum, but the more closely you get to know its momentum, the less closely you get to know its speed. So basically, uh, its position. Sorry, its, its position. It's built into the universe that you can't know everything. Yeah. Yeah, and what's what's more, what the, the the dynamic there is that the more closely you attend to one thing, the less you understand something else. And that, for me, is something. There's something in there about the agnostic spirit more generally. Um, that uh, whilst we live in an age which knows an enormous amount about certain kinds of things, it's like su- other things slip from our, our view, as it were, and we have to then attend to that too. Isn't it fair to say though, that quantum physics might be a transient scientific theory because many quantum physicists will say they don't really understand it, and so who knows what the theory will be in 50 years' time? But, but tell me, Mark, is your agnosticism wider than just with concern with God then? Well, yes. I, I mean, obviously, I, I as an atheist would recognise there's many things we don't know. But I find it very, very odd to be agnostic about God, just as I find it odd to be agnostic about um, some supernatural yellow leprechauns which we can't see under this desk. This ties a lot no with your whole chapter on Socrates in your book, doesn't it? Who's, yeah, I mean, let me pick up on agnostic. that. I think that I think the difference, perhaps, between the conviction atheist 
and the agnostic where I find myself is that I think athe atheism entails, um, or often does, the idea that really human beings are, as it were, the better judges of what's the case. Um, man is the measure of all things, right. is the famous phrase no, from no, no. protagonists. I strongly disagree with that, because that implies a relativism, and although I am an atheist, I'm certainly not a relativist. I don't think morality is just a matter of picking and choosing. Well, I don't think you're a relativist either, are you, Mark? You're no, I, I, I guess that I would have faith, that, if, if you like, that there is um, such a thing as truth, but it's beyond us, and that... Well, to be human. There's, there's many truths here which aren't beyond you. You know you're sitting inside a studio. Uh, That's true. We're talking specifically about theological agnosticism, would you say, rather than general, I don't know anything about anything. Is that right? Uh, no. I think the agnostic spirit is something that, that actually permeates all the way through human activities so through I'm the really religious question. you don't Peter, know um, a studio. It'd be quite a good idea if I can uh, finish let, the sentence. Yeah, let him, fin let him finish his sentence, Peter. <laughs> Grant <laughs> said to have an argument. <laughs> no, no. Well, an argument normally entails an exchange of yeah, well-formulated positions, <laughs> not just an interruption. I'm waiting for the well-formulated position. Thank you very much. <laughs> Listen on. Yeah, I think Socrates is kind of the hero of my book. Yeah, sure. And I think that the reason why Socrates is such a seminal figure for us is that he realised that the, um, the key to wisdom, this philosophy, this love of wisdom which he set up, is appreciating the limits of our knowledge as much as um, appreciating uh, you know, what we can say and so on. And in fact, many of um, the Socratic dialogues, as they're called, that Plato read, really quite common questions, normal questions like what's it to be a friend, uh, what's courage yeah. and so on, they end in what the philosophers called aporia, uh -huh. um, which is this pause where you realise there's a whole lot more going on than you um, ever realised. And to my mind, that speaks very powerfully to what it is to be human. It's uh, Augustine, the theologian, put it uh, rather beautifully. He said that we li live between the beasts and the angels. Sure. I don't think you've answered my question yet, which is really why specifically agnosticism about God, I suppose, or about spiritual matters? And Well, my, my other question along with that is what do you mean by spiritual and what are the limits of what we can know about it, really? Um, I, I think... Uh, there's, there's different kinds of agnosticism about God. There's a Bertrand Russell agnostic yeah. approach to God. Now, Bertrand Russell um, called himself an atheistically inclined agnostic. Right. He was quite strict and logical about it um, when he was talking in that way. He said that you can't prove a negative, you can't prove that God doesn't exist. Right. But for him, there was just so little evidence um, that he had lived as if God doesn't exist, so he lived as an atheist. For myself... Um, I, I suppose I would be um, a religiously inclined agnostic, so I sort of look in the opposite direction. That I think that my inspiration more comes from um, the kind of theology which says that for God to be God, or the, your concept of God to be worth anything, it's got to be beyond what you can comprehend. Um, otherwise, you just created an idol, to use religious but language. But that's still believing in a God, isn't it? Well, um, if you if you read the apophatic theologians, these these theologians, Sorry, that say, do, what's that word again? It's 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 a th theology by negation by saying what God is not. And um, apophatic means a God that is not this or the, that. Yeah, it's know. saying that. By definition, God is going to be beyond your comprehension. So the only way to proceed is by saying God is not this. So, for example, um, people that go to church will often say God is immortal. It just right. means that God is not mortal. Um, they'll say God is invisible. It just means God's not visible. Mm -hmm. Now, that's to say something about God, but it's also to be very conscious that the words um, that you try to use are always inadequate. Sure. And the big theologians in the monotheistic traditions all assert this, that our language about God always falls short. And you can't even say God exists, Thomas Aquinas says, because existence is what is attributed to things. Right. And for God to be God, God can't just be another thing. But surely God either exists or doesn't exist, right? No, he, he says that you can't... It, it's actually a nonsensical statement to make about well, God. May I pick up on those points? Yeah, sure. May I pick up on three oh, points, right. in fact? Earlier on, you seemed to be saying that you didn't think you knew any truth. 
But I, I assume you didn't mean to say you I didn't said, know that. I think I said I have faith that there's such a thing as truth, actually. Well, OK, but so you, are you really saying you don't believe it's true? You're sitting inside this studio at this moment? No, not at all. No. I never said that. So you're not saying that. So you do have some idea of truth. That's uh, yeah, an example. Yeah, yeah. yeah, fine, yes, yeah. Second point is you announce this claim, which Dawkins does, that you can't prove a negative. I can prove to you quite easily there's no elephants in this room, and I can prove to you there's no square circles. So some negatives you can prove, can't okay, you? fair enough, yeah. And then the third point which distresses me as an atheist is the manoeuvre which you and many believers or semi-believers or agnostics make about, well, we can't apply these words to God, e.g. the word existence or loving, and yet somehow you do use those words of God, so are you just going to say there's something about which we can say nothing or there may be something about which we can say nothing? Uh, do you not have to, first of all, baffled. define what you mean by God to deny that it exists? Well, Thomas Aquinas says you can't even do that. He says you can study physics you have and you to, can you say... You have to fix a reference. So how does say. he talk about it, then? Um, by, 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 by saying what God is not and by having a theology uh, by analogy. Ha, OK, let me so for example, I think, I think maybe this what, is, this is How do you know what you mean by God if, if you say that you can't There's a very nice distinction which might help here, which actually John Henry Newman makes, um, who was recently canonised by uh, the Pope. And he says there's two kinds of assent that we make two kinds of assent. In mathematics and logic, he, we make what he calls noetic assent, um, which is where um, you can, by sort of rational argument, as it were, decide whether something is true or not. For most of life, though, he says, we have to make what he calls real assent. And that means that we have to bring our whole person um, to the, the issue in question. So we bring our experience, we bring our encounters, we bring um, our intuitions, we bring our culture, our history, and so uh -huh. on. And for, for, for the things which actually allow us to live, we have to um, engage in this much, much bigger kind of task. So philosophy in that context, mostly uh, serves as a kind of discerning factor. It helps us work out um, what would certainly not be the case. Um, it helps us kind of clarify our thought, if you like. But to the question, a big question like um, whether you believe in God or not, I think you have to, uh, you bring in all sorts of other factors. You bring in an artistic quest as uh -huh. much as anything, an imaginative quest as much as anything. It would be a reflection upon your experience. And when you've, you've kind of sorted through that, as it were, you have to decide whether or not God makes... Um, sense in that context. But presumably you give him some characteristics when you're doing Yeah, that. so to do is you, obviously you would want to talk and speak, as it were, and not just immediately fall into silence, but eventually a point would be reached where you would fall into silence, where you'd realise, as it were, that your words collapsed in on themselves, mm -hmm. and so that's why mystery is always at the heart of the but, religious but the, quest the, too. But the first moves, when you're using certain descriptions of God, presumably you feel they are more apt descriptions than the opposite. Yeah, Otherwise you, borrow, you wouldn't use them. You, you, I guess you borrow from traditions. You, traditions being, as if you like, the accumulated wisdom of people that have gone before you. And so, um, or, or accumulated mistakes. Yeah, well, so, and accumulated mistakes, of course. It's, it's, it's a dynamic process. Accumulated sure, experience, yeah. we can say diplomatically. Um, can I ask you this? Given that you can neither conclusively, logically prove or disprove the existence of God, what's wrong with deciding that reasons and evidence can still persuade you one way or the other without, you know, without proof at the level of mathematics or you know a proven scientific theory what's wrong with saying okay still I'm going to take this evidence to be to be one way or the other I think the mistake is not to believe in something but to think that you have proven incontrovertible knowledge when you don't I think that's a mistake of both atheists and and uh, religious people make I think it's the seeds of authoritarianism and how does this idea connect with what you call bad faith in your book 
I mean, I think that evidence does count, um, certainly, but it's not an uh, issue which you um, have. Uh, in certain sciences, evidence is, is what counts. Um, in mathematics, um, logic and uh, is what counts. But always, even in quite strict sciences, intuition plays a role, um, the point in time which you come plays a role. And so, I guess know, what I'm getting at is why must it necessarily lead to agnosticism, given that we're not we're going to be a bit more open about what is a justified belief or whatever. Why must it lead to agnosticism? Why isn't atheism okay or uh, theism? Or well, I, again, I mean, you know, the honest qu answer is that it's a personal reflection to try and make sense of where I find myself. Okay. Um, I, uh, I th and I think that's, for me anyway, that's the way that philosophy works. It's a reflection on your life, as it were, and how you sure. want that, and to, to try and understand things, rather than being, as it were, a logical activity which you undertake and then decide that's where you are. But, but yep. you see, Mark, where I find a problem with your position is, at the end of the day, you presumably are going to look at some evidence in favour of God, even though you know nothing about him at times, and you know a little bit about him. But um, where is that evidence? I mean, it would be like my saying that I should be a fairyist, I uh, agnostic about fairies, because although there's no evidence in favour of fairies, nonetheless, it's logically possible there are fairies at the bottom of my garden, and so maybe I should say I'm agnostic. I, nobody th I think you're says using that. a very heavy use of the word evidence there. I think there's historical evidence, experiential Sorry, evidence. You can Sorry, call for fairies. I mean, no, I, I have God, to say, if that's, if that's a good argument for not believing in God, I, I say it's not a very good argument. I mean, fairy belief, for example, does not inspire oh, the building of great cathedrals okay, and, the, the, forget, and, the, and the wonderful a, music. Let, let's <laughs> just have this point. Just because something inspires you, it doesn't make it the case that it exists. No, no, but you take it no, more no, seriously like than just belief in fairies. No. Well, fairies have inspired lots of works of art in the oh, forget, in forget about fairies. I'm not interested in fairies. <laughs> I think you're being fairyist. Um, I want, I want to know, is, is there progress from agnosticism? Given that you're taking a point of view which says, I recognise the limitations of my knowledge, where do you go from, from there? Well, th then you have to argue about the way of life which you're going to lead, which I think is, is challenging because it's a way of life which uh, is kind of open-ended, as it were. It's not quite sure the ends to which it's, it's, it's going. There are, I guess there are a couple of things which I've been inspired by. I'm very keen on um, a 20th century philosopher called Simone Weil, uh -huh. and she has this rather nice, nice idea which she calls gravity and grace. Uh -huh. And gravity is that which would drag you down, and grace is that which would, uh, as it were, feels expansive for your humanity. And so she says that we don't know kind of what our end is as human beings, but at any moment we can, as it were, ask ourselves, does this feel expansive my humanity? Is this uh, uh, making me more of a human being? Is this enriching my experience in life? Um, is it making demands on me and so on in, in a rewarding um, way? Or it, does it just feel a kind of contraction, a reduction of but life? But you, you don't think you life? can ever have knowledge, I guess is what I'm asking you, and in which... Oh, no, no, I think you can. I mean, as I say, I, I think that um, I agnosticism you is not... saying you couldn't have knowledge. No, I, I didn't. <laughs> agnosticism is not the position that's no such thing as knowledge. That's called scepticism. Right. Um, and, and I haven't actually used the C word yet. I think no. when you um, play this back, you'll realise at the very beginning you cast a doubt on the nature of truth, even. But, um, I, but perhaps you didn't intend perfectly it. happy I to do that. I think, I think is a very being, complicated you're being thing. An, no unfair to Mark's position, Peter. I don't think he was saying anything like that. Well, we can play it back one day. Do you take a strong view on, on knowledge? I mean, do you, do you think knowledge is only what you can actually prove, like, mathematically or scientifically? No, I think knowledge comes in multitude of ways. I mean, oh, there's right. only one thing that's certainty, and that's pure mathematics, and some people will say, even well, that's not certain. Really? Um, but what about um, pure logic? Anyway. So you, so you really don't think you're certain? You're sitting inside a studio at this moment? 
I'm it, certain you are. Well, that's and very I'm kind of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm and I think you. I think seriously. What, what, what I was what I was going to say is there are many different kinds of knowledge, and yeah. depending on the criteria um, which you bring, as it were. Um, to that, um, you uh, you arrive at a satisfactory you know position, as it were, in knowledge. So I'm perfectly happy to say that I'm sitting in a studio, as it were, talking with you mm-hmm. now. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't actually use logic to work that out. I use um, the extension of my body, for yeah, example, I my experience yeah. in space, yeah, yes, and yes. that seems to me to be a very good okay, way of proceeding. Okay, bring it back to the the topic of the book, which is particularly agnosticism about God. I find it to be. Um, a sort of map of your relationship to the concept of uh, agnosticism. I mean, you go through lots of different s- subjects like how, uh, how to be an ethical agnostic, how to be a scientific agnostic. But can agnosticism make you happy? I think um, it's uh, not necessarily... I, ha- I think happiness is overrated, actually. We, yeah. we were talking about Mill uh, earlier on. I mean, Mill made the very astute comment, I think, which is that ask yourself whether you're happy and you cease to be so. Right. Um, I, I uh, happiness is a byproduct of life, and the proper question to ask is what kind of life am I leading? Am I living a, a good life, as it were, for okay. the creature called a human being? And your so, role model for a good life is Socrates, I presume? Yeah, I think uh, he, he's just one of these extraordinary figures in history who didn't write anything but left a kind of constellated, as it were, a human life that still challenges us. He's like uh, religious leaders in that respect, like Jesus who didn't write anything, like the Buddha who didn't, and people have been sort of responding to his existence ever since. And so I think he, um, because of the position he, um, the imaginative position as well as uh, anything else that he occupies, that's why he still grips us and becomes the consciousness for a civilization, as Bertrand Russell put it. So I suppose I find a problem here. You quite reasonably talked about Simon Weil and grace, you know, the enriching of your life through grace. But I, as an atheist, I can understand that. My problem always is why do you then take this further leap and say, oh, well, maybe, or perhaps in the case of theologians, there is actually a God. And that doesn't actually help the situation at all because you can enrich a life without being committed to the existence of a supernatural being. And you mentioned Mill, and following Mill, I'd say if you really do think there's some evidence to say there's a designer or a creator of the world, then look around the world. Why ever would you attribute lovingness or kindness or goodness to such a being, given the amount of suffering? Well, in the I world? don't think you can. First of all, I don't think you can assume that what you see in the world is all there is. I think that's an, that's an unwarranted. But assumption. you can. Sorry, you, sorry, you can Mark, assume I'll you that. Are, I'll let you answer that. Well, question. I mean, Peter brings in a lot of assumptions about his God, um, or the God he doesn't believe in. In that right. that, yeah. that yeah, comment, just let's make that clear. Um, <laughs> and I, m- most of the God that Peter was presenting, I wouldn't find a very interesting or plausible God. Sure. And, and in fact, if you read. And any decent theologians like Thomas Aquinas in uh-huh. the, like the first pages of his theology he knocks down most of those assumptions yeah, um, so you'd have to you come make, up with a decent concept you make Aquinas and Augustine out to be agnostics in your book but you they, 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 haven't, they, they embody the agnostic spirit but you right? seem that was the difference up, I was trying to you make you seem to end up believing in a God in which at the end of the day you're not prepared to describe in any way but many many religious believers do describe him as being all good, all loving, all powerful you know, that's part of many many religious texts and I'm just saying, if you really believe in that, surely you've got to start challenging the all-goodness ascription, or the all-powerful. I think uh, if, if what you're pointing there is the problem of evil, the yes, fact that there's the evil in the world, I think that is the, one, that is the one very, very good um, argument against the existence of God. Um, most other ex- no, uh, arguments no, which propose, I think, then you do understand good. God as being all-powerful and all-good. Um, I think Otherwise that... It well, be that's, obvi- it that's obviously the common conception of God in, in monotheistic... But for Mark to but, 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 for the, but for Thomas Aquinas, for example, when he, he affirms that God is all-good, but then he says, but we don't really know what we mean by all-goodness. Yeah. Well, so how can we possibly say all-good, then? 
No, that, 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 but that's the difference between the atheist and the agnostic. The agnostic is prepared to, to believe they don't, I, want, they don't know what they're talking about when they well, talk about it. Well, why not? I, I, I understand, finish, I understand please, what you're please. saying, Mark. The, the agnostic is prepared to say they don't know what they're talking about when they talk about God, whereas the atheist thinks they do know what they're talking about when they deny God. But and I think okay, that, that's the fundamental difference. point, if you really don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about God, why use the word good? rather than the word bad. One uses goodness and then says that what, but one doesn't really know what that, quite what that means. One, as it were, begins with one's own experience as a human being. We have some sense of what it means to be good as a human being. And so in this reaching out, this between the beasts and the angels condition, one tries to make the best sense of one's own language in that, in that effort, which I think is, again, it's just what um, artists do, it's what science does. Um, there's nothing actually that unusual in that. Okay, thanks, Mark. Oh, we're going to play another track now, and then we're going to just have some uh, concluding questions and remarks. Listen to uh, Osric Tentacles from Pungent Effulgent. I think this is called Dissolution. Very appropriate. Hello, you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. We're nearly at the end of the, the programme now, and I just want to ask my guests, Mark Vernon and Peter Kay, the, the final question of the evening, which is, what do your books tell whoever reads them uh, about philosophy and how to do it? 
Well, so my inspiration comes from the ancient Greeks, just because I studied Plato, and that's how I got into philosophy. And uh, for them, philosophy was a way of life, and that meant, I think, not that just the it's not just the effort to try and think clearly and think well, um, but you have to, as it were, shape your whole existence um, so that you as much put uh, your your psychological life in the right place, as it were. Um, so they formed communities. They also thought communities were very important yeah. um, because then you get to know people and you form a kind of friendship where things can be sort of deeply tested, not just tested at a rational level. And it's it, in a way they were more like monks um, than they were like uh, academic. Sorry, how does today. this connect to your book? Um, because I think that uh, my inspiration is Socrates, and I think this is the uh-huh. this is the vision of philosophy which yeah, Socrates you do helped to get going. Start and finish with Socrates, really, yeah, and yeah. the example that he's made. Uh, Peter, how about you? How does your book tell us about philosophy? Well, well, as a chastened philosophy for being told off for interrupting, I shall talk more quietly and not be interrupted, I assume, by Mark, which I'm sure is true, in fact. Um, I, I actually think that my book would enrich people's lives with regard to philosophy in the sense that it does touch on many, many different concepts, which once you start thinking about them, you'll find they're not at all as clear as you might otherwise just assume. So, for example, it talks about whether you know you're dreaming or not. I suspect Mark perhaps might claim he doesn't know. Um, he'll talk about self-deception. So. He'll talk about the nature of love, the nature of desire. And once you look at those everyday concepts and look at them with regard sometimes to Plato or Aristotle or Wittgenstein and just think them through, you'll, you'll realise there's far more wonderful things in life than actually one does get by just, say, um, not thinking about these things, not looking at the world in the way a philosopher does. And so I would tend also to stress that there's a sort of mystical element to philosophy, despite my being an atheist, in the sense that one does have a feeling of awe about the world, and I try to bring that out right. in a chapter about the meaning of life as well. Okay. So I'm not as cold and rational as logical as maybe some people have suggested in this discussion. Okay, that's great. Um, so we've been talking about the two books, How to Be an Agnostic by Mark Vernon, and How to Think Like a Bat, and other 30, 34 other really interesting uses of philosophy by Peter Cave. Uh, the Peter Cave book is available from P- Quirkus Publishing, and this has a for for the benefit of the listeners. This has a analytical. Uh, edge to it. Peter is a very analytical writer. and uh, well, it does have quips as well. And quips. And a few jokes. And, and jokes, cartoons. And cartoons, <laughs> and it looks like a lovely coffee table. And pages. Uh, uh, Mark, Mark Vernon's book, uh, How to Be an Agnostic, is available at the beginning of March from Palgrave Macmillan. This is much more an uh, anecdotal book, uh, a personal journey sort of book through agnosticism and all its implications. Uh, I should mention also that um, my book, The Meta Revolution, is available from uh, Amazon or for a limited period only is available on Kindle for 99p. So that's um, the bargain of the week. So I urge you to go out and buy all these things. (laughs) Thank you.